Well, good morning, church. Good morning. You guys alive out there? It's good to be together in the house of the Lord. And uh, this morning, we're getting to start a new series. We've talked about idols now for quite a while, but we're moving into uh, the Easter season that's ahead. But before we do that, I want to talk about uh, that weekend. It's been almost 2,000 years ago. And that weekend changed everything. I'm talking about the weekend of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, the death, uh, the time in the grave, and then the resurrection on Sunday. And in two weeks, we're going to celebrate that. But I'm going to spend a sermon over the next three weeks on each of those days. On Friday, we're talking about the cross today. We've sung about that this morning. Uh, we're going to talk about Saturday next week, which is a day we don't often think about. We talk about Easter Sunday and Good Friday, but some important things happen and are learned in Saturday. And then Sunday, of course, We'll celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But now I'd like to begin in prayer as we begin our time in the Word this morning. God, I pray this morning that you would pour out your, your gifts of mercy and love, that you would remind us of the sacrifice you call us to in our lives, God. And I pray this morning you pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone who agreed said, Amen. How many of you wear a, a cross around your neck? I've got one on, and I, I wear it every day. Uh, maybe you've got a cross that you have dangling from your rearview mirror, or maybe uh, on a wall in your house. The cross is a symbol that means much to us as Christians, doesn't it? Um, I was given this cross, and I've worn it now for almost eight years. And it was given to me on the day of my son's birth by my son, which is such a thoughtful gift, right? I mean, it's amazing. Uh, and I, I guess Amazon can deliver from pretty much anywhere, right? But it was a gift that my son gave me through, of course, my wife who helped pick it out. Uh, but it's been a meaningful symbol to me to remind me of the life I've committed to. And, and I, there are often times throughout my day where I'll reflect on the cross that I'm wearing and ask the question, am I living this out in my own life? Um, it's funny, we don't have any affinity to any other execution device other than a cross, do we? Never seen anyone uh, with on their wall a picture of an electric chair that they have as decoration. Uh, I've never seen anybody with a tattoo of a guillotine, although there may be one in the crowd, no judgment here. But the crosses I see everywhere. And the cross has become a symbol that was used in a far different way in years past that is now a, a symbol of triumph of what God has done on our behalf. This morning I want to remind us of that story of what the cross is because here's an important thing to remember. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. We are the stories that we tell ourselves. And this story of the cross is our story as Christians. And it's important that we understand the story behind them. Most of our conversations about the cross that I find uh, have to do with the why of the cross. What did the cross accomplish? And we know there's lots of answers to that question even in Scripture, right? That the cross is our substitutionary uh, place where God takes our place. He's substituted for us so that we don't have to go toward death. And another way... Uh, the early Christians talked about Jesus being the one who defeated the powers of death. That some kind of victory happens through Christ on the cross and through resurrection. There's all kinds of ways that people talk about the atonement, but that's not the question that I want to focus on this morning. This morning, I'd like for us to focus on the question, what put Jesus on the cross? What, what, what was it about his life? What kind of threat was he that the cross was the result? Because Jesus was a meek and a mild man who welcomed children. He preached a message of love and forgiveness. But he was executed as a criminal, as a threat to the state, to the religious authorities of his time. And I want to think about that story. And this comes back to the answer, the stories that we tell ourselves. 
which takes us back 2,000 years to the story that was being told in the Roman Empire at the time when Jesus was born in Palestine. Jesus was born into a world where there was a dominant story that was the storyline of the known world at that time. And it was a story that was told well by Rome and by the Caesars. You see, it takes a unifying narrative to build an empire as large as Rome. And that animating story, that animating myth went something like this. Caesar was born as someone, a son of God is what they would actually call him in that time. That was the story they were telling. He was known as the Soter, which just simply is translated as Savior. This is what people were saying Caesar was in that time. And he came to bring peace through victory. And, and through that story and a, a large, powerful army, the Roman Empire was able to conquer uh, the known world today from, from India all the way to England, into northern Africa. Pretty much most of the known world at that time was taken over by Caesar. And what Caesar would do is he would go into a new land, he would take his army with him, and they would conquer a new land, and they would offer them, you know, you're welcome to be citizens of the Roman Empire. And if you don't want to do that, then uh, you're going to die. That's basically the option you have. And some would take him up on it and would, would pay the taxes, and others would, would fight against and would eventually lose, at least for many years. And over time, when those victories would happen in foreign land, there would be an announcement that would come from the, the battlefield on, all the way back to Rome. And that announcement was known as good news. In fact, the word in, in, in the Greek language at that time was the word euangelion. It just simply means good news. And euangelion is a lot close to our English word evangelism or evangelical. What it means is the, the good news of Jesus. That's what is being presented But in that day, it wasn't Jesus that was the good news. It was Rome's victories brought back to Rome that was the good news. And so when the Gospels emerge, uh, the Gospel of Mark is actually the first one that's written probably in the early 60s, about 30 years after the death of Jesus. That's the prevailing story, the Roman story. Uh, We dominate people, and if you don't want that, then we have a cross you can go up on. That's basically your choice. And that's the world that Jesus is born into. But these Gospels... They tell a different story, don't they? In fact, if you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you would, to to Mark chapter 1, verse 1. I want to show you just, this is the first gospel that's written. These are the first words that begin that gospel. Pay close attention to this verse. Mark 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. You realize what Mark's doing here, right? There's a prevailing story at the time. And who is the Son of God? Caesar. Who is the Soter, the Savior? Who's the anointed one? It's Caesar. And what does Caesar bring? He brings good news. But these, this is a subversive story. It's a counter-narrative to the prevailing story of the time where Rome is in charge, they're in power, they're dominating everything. And Mark pins his gospel, and the first words he writes are these subversive words that could get him killed and ended up getting many of them killed. Because what the Christians claim where the titles that went to Caesar are actually rightfully owned by Jesus. So this is the beginning of the good news. In other words, the good news for Rome was domination. But for this, this is good news about a different story. In Caesar's story, you crush enemies. In Jesus' story, you love enemies. In Caesar's story, you marginalize the poor. In Jesus' story, you welcome the poor. In fact, Jesus called the poor in spirit the poor blessed, didn't he? In Caesar's kingdom, you use coercive military violence as the way to establish and set up and continue a kingdom. In Jesus' story, sacrificial love is the way that his kingdom comes. In Jesus' story, it is better to be executed as an enemy of the state, as someone pursuing love, than it is to execute others in the name of peace. 
And this is the revolutionary story that we've come to believe as followers of Jesus. But for 2,000 years, people have struggled to believe in this story. Not just the fact that Jesus is Lord, but to believe that the way of sacrificial love, that story of the world is better than the story that our rulers continue to tell today about might and power and violence. So we wear these crosses, and we wear them as a symbol of Friday, but many of us have come to trust more in the story of Rome than we have the story of Jesus. We struggle to believe this counter story, because it's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe that death would result in resurrection. It's hard to believe that life is possible when others are there to snuff it out by laying down our lives, but that's the story we believe in. So they take these terms like Savior and Messiah and Soter and this euangelion good news, and they say, okay, Caesar tells a story, but we're going to tell a different one because the God we serve is actually in charge here. And the disciples suffer for it. They can't seem to understand, can they? You remember in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And then he drives a little closer and he says, who do you say that I am? And, And Peter responds, and his response is great. He says, you're the Messiah. He gets it right. But right after that, Jesus says, okay, so I'm about to go and I'm going to die on a cross. And three days later, and and Peter stops him and he says, he rebukes him. That's not how this works, Jesus. Every story we've ever heard, you don't die or suffer. You actually take over. That's how this works. And and you remember what Jesus says? He says, get behind me, Satan. Because that's the story of Rome. It's not the story that I'm bringing into the world. He's telling a different story about a different kind of, of kingdom. And, and like them, our imaginations have been formed by our culture stories about power and dominance. But every now and again, you see a clash between these stories. And you begin to see the difference between the worldview of Rome or the worldview of power or the worldview of empire and the, and the worldview of the kingdom of God. And when that clash occurs, it stirs our hearts with a question, which story do we really believe in? The most famous photograph taken during the American Civil Rights movement was this picture you should see above me. It's taken on May 3rd, 1963 by Bill Hudson, a photographer for the Associated Press. Hudson was in Birmingham, Alabama because tensions were beginning to rise and he's ready to capture the moment that may be unleashed. And this is where Martin Luther King Jr.'s activists had, had taken on the city's racist public safety commissioner, Eugene Bull Connor. This photo was taken of a teenage boy attacked by a police dog. And even this day, it, it hasn't lost its power to shock. The next day after this, the New York Times published this on the front page of the New York Times, above the fold. that used to remember that term before. It was all website, right? Above the fold, taking up three columns of the New York Times, and all the newspapers around the country seemed to follow suit that day. It was the talk at water coolers and classrooms. It was even the talk in the White House. President Kennedy saw the photograph and was appalled. The photo was discussed on the floor of Congress, and a year later, Uh, The Congress passed the Landmark Civil Rights Act in 1964, one of the most important pieces of legislation in the history of our country. And this picture played a key role, but the story behind this picture is even more fascinating. Because in 1963, King's movement was losing momentum. It had been a long time since they'd won a legal victory. It was in 1954, of course, that the Brown versus Board of Education outlawed segregation. But here we are a decade later, and things don't seem to change, especially in the South and places like Birmingham. And so schools continue the way they are, and so they they realize they're going to have to stir up more trouble in order uh, to see things change as they should. Birmingham was the most racially divided city in America. It was known as the Johannesburg of the South. It also got the name Bombingham for the number 
of dynamitings that were happening from the Ku Klux Klan, intimidating people, uh, African-Americans trying to move into white neighborhoods. And if King and the Civil Rights Movement were to regain momentum, it would take a confrontation in a place like Birmingham with Bull Connor. The movement was committed to nonviolence because it followed a Baptist preacher who'd learned the ways of Jesus and taught a way of nonviolence, of even enemy love. His commitment was to love the white oppressor because he didn't, the white oppressor didn't even see how they were being uh, subverted by, by this racism of the time. And so it was the way of sacrificial love, the way of Jesus over the way of Rome that he chose. In Birmingham, the strategy was threefold to try to stir things up. The first was to, to start with local sit-ins at businesses uh, to, to draw media attention to the problem of segregation in Birmingham. The second uh, part of this was going to be the boycott of downtown businesses to put financial pressure on the white business community to reconsider their practices toward uh, black customers. And finally, there was a plan to a series of mass marches to back up the boycott, uh, basically to fill up the jail so that Bull Connor would have to do something with the voice that was still remaining. It was a high stakes operation. Just before this in Albany, Georgia, it hadn't worked because the public safety commissioner didn't create the problem, but he knew that Bull Connor might be a little different. So the story goes that the Obviously, the white conscience had to be pricked beyond what it was to move to action. So the idea was if we can get a photograph, if we can get a picture, if we can get video of what will take, uh, take place in this encounter, then perhaps then things will change. Well, the marches began on Palm Sunday of 63, and they grew and grew. And about a month later, finally, there was a, a partner of King's, Reverend James Bevel, who decided, hey, let's do, go, take this a step further. What if we were to actually teach the principles of nonviolent resistance to children? and to march them in the streets alongside of us. And it was a huge decision that changed the course of the movement, taught these children from a young age, even 10, maybe some who were younger, to march in the streets, to love their oppressor, to pray that God would make a change, and to make noise. And on Thursday, May 2nd, these children began the children's crusade. They encouraged by the words of Martin Luther King Jr. They marched out of 16th Street Baptist Church, a building I was in just last year, a site where just a few years later there would be a bombing where four young girls would lose their lives. But on this day, these young children marched out of the front door. They sang their freedom songs. They held their signs. They bowed their knees to pray before filing into dozens of pat police paddy wagons. And by the end of the day, more than 600 children were in jail. 600 Children, imagine, imagine being in such a scenario where you would send your own kids uh, to be taken care of by Bull Connor. I just can't imagine being in that kind of place with this resistance built the next day. That wasn't the end of it because 1,500 school children skipped school to march down to 16th Street Baptist Church. The streets were patrolled by police and the fire hoses were ready at the command of Bull Connor. And sure enough, he commanded them to turn those hoses loose. And the German shepherds ready to attack. And these iconic images changed the civil rights struggle. The nation's conscience hadn't quite gotten to its place of indignation. The story of power and dominance was being used. But this allowed all of us to see a picture of what it really was that was behind all this. The brutality, the dominance, what it turned into. And these pictures and videos out of Birmingham and from Bloody Sunday on the bridge near Selma were forcing Americans to consider these stories. Which is the better story. The story of dominance that's willing to oppress even the innocent. The story of sacrificial love that's willing to give up whatever it means so that those might have freedom. 
And in those clash of stories, it becomes pretty obvious which story's better, doesn't it? On Friday, I would submit to you, Jesus did a very similar thing. Jesus was putting the worst of Rome's story on display. He was revealing the brutality. He was revealing what happens, the dominance, along with the Jewish leaders to protect their leadership. They actually went so far as to take the death, to take the life of an innocent man. Pilate knew he was innocent. Herod knew he was innocent. But the Jewish people wouldn't give up their cry, and so they chose Barabbas over Jesus. And what were they choosing when they chose Barabbas? They were choosing Rome's story. Because Barabbas was a violent revolutionary who might just have a chance. But this Jesus who's willing to give up his life, not exactly. In fact, I want to read from the book of John. If you have your Bibles, John 19. Listen closely to these, these words that tell the story of the trial and what happens at the end of Jesus' life. It's, it's an astounding set of verses. John 19, second half of verse 14. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews. But they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. Listen to this phrase. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. And there they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. People chose Caesar instead of Jesus as their leader. They chose the different story than the story of the kingdom. I like the way Paul writes about this in Colossians chapter 2 as he reflects on the power of the cross and what it was trying to do. Listen to these words. This is Colossians 2 verse 15. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Do pay attention to those words in that passage. This is what the cross did is what Paul is saying. It disarmed the powers and authorities. What it did is it put on display. This is what happens when Rome gets up ahead of steam as they kill innocent people. Is this really the story you want to choose? And then as the story goes on, it goes forward. He made a public spectacle of them, showing that the emperor has no clothes, right? Showing that what you see, all this bluster in the end, it can't win because violence just creates more violence. My way of sacrificial love puts an end and a stop to that. In other words, Jesus was putting Rome's story on trial. Is this really what you want, Jesus says? Is this the story of power and dominance? Is it worth it? I mean, what were King and Bevel and the parents of children in Birmingham thinking sending their children in the dangerous streets of Birmingham? I would suggest they were doing exactly what Jesus was, was doing. They were revealing what was behind the story. They were disarming the powers and principalities. They were making a public spectacle of the racism of Jim Crow. So what does segregation amount to? Jesus shows them. He says, it's like, it's like grown men letting loose fire hoses on young children. It looks like dogs biting a defenseless young man named Walter Gadsden. When you think about the cross, perhaps you need to consider this picture again. Because this picture that we see in 63 is a picture of sacrificial love marching and refusing to hate, but only loving in response. And then comes a statement even stronger. He triumphed over them by the power of the cross. Now, that would have been an odd statement in those days, right? Because the cross was a symbol of shame. The cross was a symbol of defeat. On Saturday morning when they woke up, no one thought that Jesus had conquered anything. But this cross turns into a different symbol as the story goes on. This symbol of defeat now becomes a symbol of triumph. 
But in those days, the cross was foolishness. Paul uh, reflects on this idea a little bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, one of my favorite verses in Scripture. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18, listen to what he says about the cross. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the... I'm in Romans chapter 1, not 1 Corinthians. Let me get over there. You have the screen to help, yeah. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Friday represents a new wisdom. It won't make sense to everyone, but the cross represents our story. We believe in sacrificial love, amen? We believe in in service. We believe in love. We believe in resistance when it's needed. We welcome those on the outside. In a couple of weeks, we're going to celebrate this resurrection. We're going to talk about the empty tomb. Sometimes we've been too quick to preach Sunday without realizing that Friday came before that. You cannot have a resurrection without a death. And love always costs something, doesn't it? Any good story costs something. You see this in every movie that you've ever loved. The character has to go through some kind of conflict to get the prize that's waiting. And often in the midst of that, this external conflict changes them from the inside, doesn't it? Sometimes we look at conflict and we think, where is God in the midst of this? And and I think we see on the cross the picture of where God is. Jesus feels forsaken, but in the background, God is moving the world in a whole new way through this willingness to sacrifice himself on our behalf. With love, there's always a cost. If anyone tells you a story where there's no cost, either that story's not worth living into or it's a lie. Because good stories demand conflict and a cost. We committed to a cross. And so for Christians, suffering, as hard as it is, it isn't a surprise, is it? Not with our story. Not with the symbol that we have on our walls that we wear around our necks. The cross is a reminder that God is not far from us in suffering. He knows exactly what suffering feels like. So some of you need that word this morning. Because you may be thinking, what in the world is the meaning of this suffering I'm walking through? How am I ever going to get through this? How how is a resurrection pulled out of this? What I would tell you is that the cross is a reminder that God knows suffering. That he walks beside us. He's not far off in those moments. He's not inflicting us with that suffering. God is moving the world through the suffering of people who stand up under it and hope for resurrection on the other side. And I hope that's a word of encouragement this morning to some of you that are, you're just barely holding on. And in the midst of it, you feel like God's as far as he's ever been from you. Jesus uttered those words. We'll talk about that more next week. Psalm 22. God, why have you forsaken me? It's great to cry out those words in times of suffering. But in the end, God's the one who resurrects as well. He's the one who sits behind us in our suffering. People ask, where was God on 9-11? I'll tell you, he was right there with those who were dying. Where's the God in the midst of tragedy in your life? He's right there beside you. Our God's not the God who's far off. He stands near to us. Call on him for help. Cry out to the Holy Spirit to bring what's needed. See, the most meaningful gift in our lives came on the backside of suffering. It was Jesus on a cross who gave up his life, who, who revealed to the world and unarmed the principalities and powers for what they were. If we believe anything, we believe this, don't we, church? The most meaningful gift we've received is through suffering. Where was Jesus on May 3rd, 1963? I'd suggest he was right there beside Walter Gadsden. And as you experience suffering, I want to encourage you to know the same. He is there right by your side. And I don't know what he's going to do with it, but he has a way of turning some of the most impossible things and using them for his glory. I pray he'll do that in your life as well. 
Let's uh, pray as we close our time this morning. Father, we have forgotten our story so often. We're so quick to run to resurrection and triumph. Sometimes we believe the story that Caesar tells more than we still to believe the story that Jesus tells. But God, when we claim Jesus is Lord, what we say is Caesar is not, and that his story is not the way the world actually works. So God, this morning as we, uh, as we move to this time of, of, of being launched back out into the world, of, of walking through the suffering uh, that we are walking through and wondering where you are, my prayer this morning is that you'd find us there. You'd find us exactly in that moment. For those who feel more alone than ever, God, would you find them this week as they cry out to you, as they feel for, forsaken, God? And would you remind them of this story, the cross? of sacrificial love and what it does for the world much more than triumph. And so, God, even in our losses, your working wins, and we pray that you do that even again this week. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.